Welcome everyone to Two Guys to the Dark Tower Came, a podcast where we discuss the characters, connections, and deeper meanings of Stephen King's magnum opus, The Dark Tower. I'm Jay Russo. And I'm Sean McGurr. You can email us at twoguysdarktower at gmail.com. To support the show, visit us at patreon.com slash twoguysdarktower. In this episode, we'll cover Salem's Lot, the epilogue, deleted scenes, the afterword, and our book wrap-up. Let's start the show! The book concludes with bits of articles collected by Ben Mears in a scrapbook showing that there are still bad things happening in Salem's Lot and nearby towns. Ben and Mark return to the now-empty town and come up with a plan to rid the area of vampires. Start a fire that will kill most of them and chase the others out where they can be found and destroyed. So like a happy ending all around, right? Yeah, sure. We we, we can assume that, right? Mm -hmm. So we've only got about, what, eight pages here in this section? So uh, very little bit uh, here, and it's fairly straightforward. We've got sort of that recap of some odd things happening in Salem's Lot, uh, dogs being found dead and humans going missing and people dying mysteriously and moving out of Salem's Lot. And then Ben and Mark return, they hang around at a motel for a while, and then when the time is right, they decide to start a fire, and the book ends there. Um, so fairly straightforward, and there's not a whole lot of thematic stuff to talk about other than us being pedantic about one thing in particular, and that's... Us pedantic? Never. <laughs> yeah, and I just got really caught up and couldn't control myself in trying to figure out the timeline here and the inconsistencies that lie within. So, Jake, can you uh, allow me to go off on a little tangent here on, on, this, on this timeline? And By all means, yeah. Feel free to butt in and, and let me know when I've, I've done something wrong here. But I, I, I went through the epilogue, I went through the prologue, and I pulled out some key dates in the book itself. So, we learn early on that Ben arrives in Salem's Lot on September 5th, 1975. That is a known date. He meets Susan on September 6th or September 16th, 1975, so about a week later. And then the lot itself falls over a three day period, October 6th through the 8th. So Susan dies on October 6th, 6th. Mark witnesses that. Ben and Mark meet that following morning, the 7th. That night, Callahan needs to leave because Mark's parents are killed and Callahan meets Barlow and is run out of town. And then October 8th, Jibby Cody dies. Mark and Ben kill Barlow that late afternoon, and then they leave that night. Do we concur that those are our correct dates? Yeah, that all adds up. Okay. Right after that, according to the epilogue here, Ben returns to the lot for his stuff on October 9th, and they head west. Now, if we go back to the prologue, we find out what happens when they head west. They make three stops along the way, King tells us. Ben works at a textile mill in Rhode Island. We're not told how long he works there, but let's say it's a month. Fair enough? So a month. So then we're talking, what, mid-November at this point? They then move on to Youngstown, where Ben works at an assembly line, putting together trucks for about three months. We're given an actual month time there. So three months. Youngstown, Ohio? Youngstown, Ohio, yes. The very earliest it could be is mid-February, depending on how long their drive is, what they're doing along the way, it could be later than that. They then go from Youngstown to California. Again, we don't get how much time they're there, but Ben pumps gas and repairs cars, so he has some sort of job for a little bit there. 
So at a minimum a month, which would take mm-hmm. us to March. At that point, he gets his book sold and he gets $12,000 advance and he and Mark moved to Mexico. Yeah. In Mexico, we're told that they attend mass once or twice a month. That sentence alone implies they've been there more than a month. Yeah. I mean, you need to have multiple months to have a trend like yes, that, right? Exactly. Right. After a certain amount of time, Mark announces he wants to join the church. Two weeks later, after Mark announces he wants to join the church, Ben finds the paper that says that a little over a year ago, uh, the paper that has the article titled Ghost Town in Maine. And in that article, the author says a little over a year ago, people began to go missing. It's two months after that, that Mark is taken into the church. Mark makes a confession. The priest talks to Ben. And then a week later, Ben tells Mark, we're going back. So if that all makes sense, maybe there's a year there, right? Because we know that they return in the epilogue back to Salem's Lot in September. Right. So it's either they've only been gone less than a year, and that article is wrong because the article says it was a little over a year ago, or they've been gone well over a year and it's been two years. It can't be less than a year. They left town in October and they're back in September. It means they have to have, it has to be at least 11 months, right? Right. So it's either 11 months or it's 23 months. Yeah. Right. But what's odd is in the newspaper articles that Ben collects, they only go up till June. And then his scrapbook doesn't have anything beyond that. So I think it's safe to assume that they return a year later and there's just a mistake, right? That that newspaper that they collected, which remember, the newspaper that Ben reads is the Portland, Maine newspaper that Mm -hmm. he gets at a gas station. In Mexico. Yeah, in Mexico. And who knows how long it takes to get there. Right. So this is me rambling on and on and on just to say that the dates don't really match up. I think I think we're supposed to think that it's been a year since whatever happened in Salem's Lot happened, and they're coming back 11 months later, and then they burn the town down. Yeah, there's a lot on the page that talks about how dry it is, and, and they're waiting for the perfect moment to start what would otherwise be assumed to be a naturally occurring forest fire, because conditions were such that it, it could happen, right? In the Northeast, like, generally speaking... The driest part of the year comes well before October. Like, yeah. once fall starts to kick in and the weather starts to cool down at night, that brings pretty big changes in the weather and you get at least occasional rain. It's usually not the dry season. So, this is either really, really out of character for the area and certainly not something that Ben would have counted on in his planning. Or maybe they were supposed to be there in the summer when it normally would be the most likely dry period. But somebody, whether it was King or one of his editors, thought, wouldn't it be cool if this story wraps up in the spooky month of October? Or wouldn't it be cool if the story wraps up in the same month that it kind of all began? Yep. Or, or, or where it ended? Like, there's a cycle. There's a, there's a pattern. There's, there's something going on here. Like, wouldn't it be cool if Friday the 13th took place on Halloween? Like... <laughs> I guess it would, but that's not really possible, right? Right. Yeah, just some sloppiness there. And it really all could be corrected with that article that they found that said over a year ago. Mm-hmm. It, it could have simply said about a half a year ago. Yeah. And it would have all made a lot more sense. Because as you said, they they come back in September and then they burn the town down in October. 
And not only are they waiting for the dry season, I think, but they also seem to indicate like they're waiting for the tourists to go away as well yeah. so that there won't be as many people around to notice them or see what's happening or be collateral damage in any way. And that adds up. Yeah, that makes sense. October and Maine, who's going to be there, right? But what tourists are in an abandoned town full of vampires? <laughs> yeah, that's true, too. Yeah. <laughs> Anyhow. <laughs> just some interesting date stuff and we might talk about this in our next episode where we talk about the sequel story one for the road which i think also has some some dates in there this is the problem when you put actual dates in your story unless you sit down and map it out and are very precise about this you're going to have stupid weirdos like ourselves going through and picking it apart for no apparent <laughs> reason yeah well maybe it all takes place in some alternate reality uh, the, of the tower and the compass doesn't make any sense and the calendar doesn't make any sense. Hey, I just found a thinny. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> the other thing that this section brought forth was the fire of 51 that had been talked about throughout the novel. Yep. We now see is foreshadowing for what's to come. Like King just makes a great point of like all the old timers know about the fire of 51 not even that old timers, because it was only, you know, 25 years in the past. Um, it's exactly 25 years in the past. Yeah, exactly 25 years. So we've been told before that the lots almost burned down, and that helps Ben decide where he's going to start it, mm -hmm. because they go to the point where we're like, oh, the people think that this is exactly where it started. So he feels like that's a good place to, to get it going. And it's a nice little payoff for that. Yeah. But it raises the question, like, this is a big plan of uh, on Ben's part. They're going to travel all the way back across the continent to a place that they are terrified to be, and justifiably so, to start a fire that may or may not work. So, like, did the fire work? Did the fire accomplish much of anything besides just destroying the the forest and some of the structures? Uh, like, I, it didn't wipe out the vampires, right? Or, or no. did it? I no. I mean, they're he Ben even says like this isn't going to wipe them out. We'll get most of them, but starting tomorrow, he tells Mark, you and I are going to have to go through and hunt out the rest of them and kill them. Hmm. So he doesn't even think like, oh, we're going to get them all. We'll still have a job to do here, uh, which again sounds really scary, uh, especially for these two and what they've been through, and seems pretty impossible maybe uh just by the scrapbook alone that ben's been keeping we realize that the vampires have moved out beyond salem's lot like some of those headlines are like oh in the town of cumberland this happened and in this town this happened so they're expanding and if we saw how quickly they went through salem's lot it would make sense that they would have to even if they're not as smart as barlow they some of them would have to spread out and feed to get new sustenance Yeah. And I, I know this doesn't really fit into the, the genre that King is playing in here, but the fact that a vampire like Barlow, who is ancient and wise and careful, could continue to exist undetected in the world for as long as he did, I, I'm willing to buy that. But his vampire spawn are dumb. They don't know how to be all that crafty. All they basically do is respond to light in an instinctive way and hide. In the, and sleep in the daytime and if they're just like without guidance without <laughs> figuring themselves out really effectively they're just slowly spreading to the nearby towns wouldn't eventually somebody or enough people see 
evidence of vampirism and to realize like, oh, this is actually a real thing in the world. And we as uh, non-vampire people need to get rid of them all. I, right. I just, I don't buy that this could continue for, you know, <laughs> like just indefinitely and not, and just people wouldn't pick up on it. And, and and Ben's plan to just the two of them go vampire to vampire and stake by stake eliminate every single one of these vampires because they can hunt during the day you know hunt them down during the day it's just not practical no but you think they'd call it reinforcement somewhere along the way right yeah he already knows that there's a newspaper man who's interested in what's going on you know go the cold mm-hmm. check route ask cold check for help right let him know i've got i know where all these people went and what happened there but we're probably getting beyond the novel because you know we'll talk about it when we wrap up the book here later in the episode. But you and I really love this novel. Like, yeah, it's great. Yeah, it's awesome. I don't want to start picking at it in the last eight pages of the book, but yeah, and and I don't know. King could have just ended it with a coda, like you know, basically like we're all doomed or something, you know, right uh, along those lines. So you and I have both been reading the Salem's Lot illustrated edition mm-hmm. of this book. And one of the fascinating things about it is that there are 50 pages of deleted scenes yeah, of varying quality and varying interest. Like some of it is just expanding certain scenes and, and there's some other things, but we thought it would be interesting to look through it. So for those of you who haven't picked up the illustrated edition, you might want to take a, take a look at it before. Uh, and if you're not going to, we'll point out what we think is sort of the cool stuff uh, that comes out of the deleted scenes. Yeah, this is this content is by no means like the the director's edition of a movie where like, oh, now I understand this story. This these are things that were removed in a these were justifiable edits like yes, not to diminish them, but you don't need to know this information or you didn't need to read all of the deleted scenes to have a better or greater understanding of the story that was published. Um, But it just as a as an exploration of king's process and an exploration of the editing process even they're interesting on their own yeah and a lot of this isn't like the two different versions of the stand where one was hey you've only published three or four books we don't want you to put out a thousand page novel can Mm -hmm. we cut it back to 700 uh this seems to be king thinking through what he wants his story to be yeah and what he wants to focus to be and if you've ever read his on writing book you could see him do that where he edits up a a few pages of story, you get the sense in reading these deleted scenes like, oh, this doesn't fit because of this reason, or I made this change because you can sort of see the reasons for some of this being edited out. Um, so it is a good look at maybe where he was in an earlier draft of the novel. Yes, absolutely. Because one of the things that's very apparent in these deleted scenes is that they are not, let's just say, a publish-ready condition. They're hmm. they're not the final version of whatever King would have allowed, you know, to be bound and sold to his readers. Um, so like they they lack uh, quite a bit of polish, some of them. And you hmm. could see from one one deleted scene to the next, some of them are more polished than others, but there are things in there that it it sort of reads like this is like the a first draft. This was just King getting his ideas down, and then once he re-examined them decided, oh, this whole thing's got to come out because it's just not great. But even things that sort of were so close to or aligned very well with the published book, you could see like 
the draftness of them. Like there are a lot of adverbs in here and we know how King feels about those. And I was kind of surprised that he wrote so many of them. But of course, I'm sure like, you know, in the published version of this book, there aren't that many. They, they don't stand out to a degree. And yet in these edited scenes, um, they exist. So it's, it's just one indication of how this is a, an early version of King's work. And you can see that that's how his work in progress starts off with a raw idea and makes its way to a, a finished product. And just to push back on you a little bit, because I didn't notice that as much as you did. I'm not saying you're wrong because I think you're right. But I will say that King's first draft material is better than anything that you or I or anyone listening could write. Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I, far, I, but... <laughs> I don't dispute that. I'm not saying, uh, yeah, I only read Stephen King because I'm a better writer than him. No, quite the opposite. But I can see a, a craftsman at his craft in these deleted scenes is my point. Yes, there's, absolutely. There's, there's a process and King's following that process. That, that process includes drafts, revisions, feedback from editors, feedback from maybe even friends and family. We know that like Tabitha always reads his work. These things all contribute to what is ultimately the published version. And it's clear that not all of those eyes had, had seen these pieces yet. And King hadn't taken the time to revise all of these pieces based on any feedback he may have gotten. Yep. And that's, that's my point. Yes, absolutely. I just didn't want our listeners to, who haven't read this yet to think, oh boy, it must be a bunch of trash because it's far not. from it. It's no. not. Yeah. So let's go through a couple of the changes. One of the big things you'll notice, and this is a simple one, is that there are a lot of name changes. Hmm. So in, in this version, Salem's Lot is not called Salem's Lot. It's called Momsen, which is something that King keeps in the introduction. There's a another ghost town in Vermont, this one is, that's called Momsen. But uh, so he changed the name of the the titular town here. He it also rolls changed... off the tongue better than dad daughter. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Momsen. Um, he also changes a lot of name changes. Mike Ryerson was called Mike Bush in these scenes. Larry Crockett was Parker Crockett. And then a very interesting one that actually might have something we could speculate on is Barlow was called Sarlanoff. Mm. And even Count Sarlanoff on occasion. Yes, on occasion, exactly, yeah. And I think part of that is me speculating that King didn't want people to automatically assume vampires from the beginning. Like, you mm -hmm. get the sense reading the, the actual novel that he's okay with letting you speculate on what's happening. Um, he does that elsewhere in these deleted scenes where people don't speculate about vampires as much until later on. So... Uh, those are some of the name changes that are uh, instantly noticeable. Building on your, your point about the vampire speculation, we talked a lot about that early in this book. Like We were coming into this book fully aware of the vampires. We, were, we knew all about what Salem's Lot is. You know, it's Peyton Place with vampires, right? Like, yep. But we also wondered a lot about how this is Stephen King, the relatively unknown author's second published book. What did anybody who bought this book without really knowing what it was about think? Was this just a Peyton Place type story that, you know, a third of the way through, you're like, wait a second, vampires? Uh, what? what? You know, that would have been really cool to, to that to be completely unknown. And I think King had the right instincts to mask that for as long as possible. It wasn't necessarily a mystery that you, the reader, are trying to solve, but not stating it right up front 
you know, like having Barlow just be Barlow rather than Count Barlow or Count Sarlanoff. Like that's just too on the nose. And there's another scene where like a doctor who we don't ever actually meet, I think, in the published version lists all of these things about Danny Glick's death that basically they come right up to saying vampire, but not. And there's, it's very little room left for the imagination to, to like you as the reader, you're like, this is kind of a spooky story. Like a dog died and a weird thing happened in the graveyard and scary stuff with kids. And yeah, he, this must be vampires, you know? Right. Um, I think King made the right choice to mask that as long as he did. Yeah. And in cutting out some of that, he also cut out a lot of what I would call telling and not showing. So hmm. he has a scene early on where Ben explains exactly the novel that he's working on and what it means and how he how the horrors of his past are coming to light and how he needs to write about it in this town. And we can deduce all that without being told this directly by a character. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think that that's a a smart cut by King to realize, hey, this is not something that I need to explicate as as drawn out as I have here. I can let my reader come to that conclusion. Um, And there's another point where Ben talks a lot about how much money he made as an author. Which yeah. is really, really inside baseball. Like, I got paid this much for this book and this much for that book, which I'm sure is something that was on King's mind as a brand new writer. And he, you know, write what you know. But again, do your readers really want to hear about that? Probably not. Yeah. And there were enough deleted scenes of things that were removed from the published version that left me kind of wishing that King had kept them. Not so much because I felt like the story suffered for it, but I think it just might have made the, the stew a little spicier. Like, there are a few scenes in the published book with rats, and they're spooky and all, but there are so many more scenes with rats, and they go way, way, way over the top with how how crazy scary rats can be. Um, And I kind of wish, maybe not keep every one of these deleted scenes, but maybe just keep more rats in the story. I just... (laughs) What King did in these deleted scenes tells me he could have he could have just had more rats and like <laughs> I need more rats and it would be much more fun. Uh, so I've talked before to get to your point about rats. I've talked before about how the scene that horrified me in almost all of King literature is Jimmy Cody's death, you know, falling down the stairs onto knives. Mm-hmm. And it turns out that in one of the deleted scenes, that's not how Jimmy Cody dies. No. <laughs> in fact, Jimmy Cody falls in the basement and is overwhelmed by a pack of rats, so much so that when he sees Mark, he's basically just a shell of a man in clothes, <laughs> yeah. just filled with rats that are just sort of coming out of him, sort of talking in a way that he could tell Mark to run. But it just falls apart into all rats. He's like a hundred rats wearing a guy's shirt and pants. That's yes. like all he is. He goes from the bottom of the steps as a as a man to the top of the steps as a hundred rats wearing his shirt and pants. And it's and, horrifying. Yeah. And like there's just enough of him to scream one final time before he collapses into rats. Yeah. That's it's that kind of stuff that makes me wish that King had kept more rats in the book. Yeah. Um and, and another surprising change is that Callahan just dies outright. Yeah. Like King has Sarlanoff just kill Callahan and that totally changes not only this story but would have changed the Dark Tower entirely. Yeah. However, the way that Callahan dies in this is very very similar to the way he dies in the Dark Tower. And he dies succumbing to vampires basically 
in the Dark Tower. So mm. the, the difference is that here he's holding a cross and that is his talisman of power. And that's what fails him. And the reason why he ultimately is killed by, by Barlow in the Dark Tower, his talisman of power is the, the Shkolpata, the, the turtle. Right. And the turtle holds the vampires at bay long enough that he can help Jake and Oi escape the Dixie Pig, but it's not enough to keep them from killing him. And Callahan, like in this story, rather than stabbing himself and committing suicide, basically, it's like, I won't let you turn me into a vampire. Ha ha. You know, he <laughs> right. in, in the Dark Tower book, he shoots himself. Yep. Because he he's spent the whole rest of his life at that point fighting vampires. He knows all about them now. He's he's like public enemy number one to the vampires right. because of all of the things he's done against them. So I kind of feel like King deleted the scene and then rewrote it. it and put it in the Dark Tower. And I think it fits there just as well as it would have here. Yeah. One thing that I had an unanswered question about, and I did mention it when we got to this part, is when Jimmy Cody and Mark Petrie are hunting down vampire locations, at one point, Mark Petrie comes out of a bathroom when Jimmy says something and he has his shirt off. And I'm like, why does Mark have his shirt off? Like, it just seemed weird to me. Like, he was just going to, because he tells Jimmy, I'm going to the bathroom. And then he comes out without a shirt on. I'm like, what was he doing in there exactly? And it turns out that there's this whole long scene with the McDougals where they go through and they kill each one, mm-hmm. the, the father, the mother, the baby, one by one. And King goes into great deal about it. And then when they get to the next house, Mark says, can I take a shower? And he goes into the shower and then the scene picks up where Jimmy says it. And so that makes a hell of a lot more sense of why Mark has his shirt off. Yeah. I mean, they should be a little bit smarter about it. If they know that it's going to be gushers of blood and gore, like do a little bit American Psycho style, you know, show up with the poncho, put on the rubber gloves and the goggles, put on the Huey Lewis and then go to town. (laughs) Yeah. Um, What else? Sarlanoff in the scene where they go to find Susan has left them a tape recorder with an audio message as opposed to a letter, which I thought was really cool because we talked about how the vampires are using today's technology in new ways. And I thought, oh, that'd be really cool if Barlow slash Sarlanoff had used the tape recorder. What's particularly neat about it is that after he does this long monologue on on the tape recorder, he has Susan come in and say a few things. And it's just this horrifying sexual <laughs> come and get me. And it's just really creepy. Uh, but it's sort of cool. I could see it being used very well cinematically. Like it would work really well as opposed to a bunch of people reading a letter. Yeah. Um, but King decided to take that out and just keep the letter, which in itself is is a cool letter and br- really brings back the old school count writing a, a letter for his victims. Yeah. The letter is really cool, but I do think that King maybe missed an opportunity there. Not only is the tape recorder, the audio recording more cinematic in a way, but it goes back to your point that you made a couple of episodes ago, how this was King's response to Dracula in that Dracula was a story about a vampire like lost in a world of modern technology. Like he couldn't compete with the technology. And King's response is that this is a story about the dwindling of modern technology and how it isn't anything special anymore and therefore doesn't have any power over the vampires and 
embracing more technology than King did in the published version, like having Barlow use a tape recorder and maybe some other things like the vampires calling people on the phone. And right. King left some money on the table there where he could have had the vampires just embrace the technology more in more ways and more often. And this would have been a prime opportunity. And he actually wrote it. And yeah, you know, it's like, it there. just just keep that in. I love the letter, but I, I think the tape recorder would have worked a little bit better. Yeah. Um, Sarlinoff slash Barlow, uh, instead of being staked, is actually killed via sunlight. So mm. they pull his body into the sun and he dies that way. Again, the teeth remain. So you could see King went through a lot of fairly significant changes from what might have been an early draft until what the final piece was. Uh, anything else you wanted to point out? I, I, I really do think that if you have an opportunity to look at these deleted scenes, they're worth your time. I agree. They're, they're definitely worth exploring. We just touched on a few of them that, that you know, seem to really stand out for us, but they're all kind of cool, especially if you like this book as much as Sean and I do. Any extra content is just going to be that much more fun. So check them out. Indeed. The other thing that is in this book is an afterword. It was written in 1999, uh, this afterword that King has. It's about seven or eight pages in this edition that is really sort of touching in an odd way. Yeah, it really is. The first thing I want to point out is you get this sense of how much King loves books and libraries. Yeah. And just what an influence it was on him and how he says like he was able to read all this stuff as a kid. Because his mom didn't limit on what he read. He basically said, go to town, read whatever. So, you know, he would get his comic books from the newsstand, but he would spend so much time in libraries reading whatever he could. And, you know, he'd show his mom what he read, but like he would read just about everything. And he talks about how certain books have a certain smell to them or a certain feel to them or little indications that other people have read them and how that added to the reading experience for him. I, I kind of feel like some of this is just King sort of telling a tale to make a point, but he talks about the 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 romance of a physical book, especially one borrowed from a library, the the implication that that book was held by and read by lots of other people, especially if it's a really popular book, that like perhaps hundreds of other people have read those very pages. And how he talks about how there's like a smudge of mustard or a stain from somebody's, you know, evening whiskey. Like he just whatever mark on the page, he's telling he's weaving a whole imagined like life around that thing. Like it's, you know, why did why is there mustard on there? You know, because somebody was enjoying this book on their lunch break. Right. It's like, right. There, there's so much to that. I've taken books out of the library and read library books. I've never noticed a mustard stain on a page, but I'm sure that this stuff happens. Oh yeah. But King has seen that. I'm sure that at some point in his life, he's, in, he's encountered things like that on the books he's borrowed from libraries and how much he treasures the access that a library gave him. Like he was not a wealthy kid growing up, quite the opposite, but libraries are, you know, they democratize knowledge. They, they make all the wonderful stories and information that are, is in all of these books available to anybody for free. And he took great advantage of that. And it made him into the, the well-read author that he became. And, and that leads to the other thing that's, that's really sweet is King's tribute to his mother and how she didn't restrict his access to the library. She didn't even try to steer him away from 
certain types of books, she would just passively be judgmental about things if she didn't <laughs> like it. But she didn't say, don't read it. She just said, that's a trash book, you know? But if she really didn't like it, she would say it's bad trash. And King concludes this afterward by saying, if my mother were still alive to read this book, because apparently she died just before he published it, she probably would have read it and considered it trash, but maybe not bad trash. Yeah. That's like really great. Like he knows how his mom would have reacted because she was a voracious reader too. She was always marathoning her way through books. That's one of his keenest memories of, of his mother. And so, of course, she would have read his book and she would have just deemed it trashy. <laughs> and that would have been such high praise for him. He would have loved to, for her to call this book trash. And I think that in an alternate reality where his mom did have a chance, did live long enough to read this book, that maybe that's what she would have said. Yeah. Trash, but not bad trash. Yeah. I love it. I love it. Well, we only had uh, eight pages in the epilogue here, and I did not catch any Dark Tower thinnies. But if we included the deleted scenes, Jay, I think maybe we could find a Dark Tower thinny. Yes. Unfortunately, we already kind of talked all the <laughs> way through this, and it's about the fact that Callahan dies in the deleted scenes mm. and how that not only would have dramatically changed King's character choices and, and story in the Dark Tower books, but the fact that that scene was, I think, adapted by King to fit Callahan's ultimate demise in the Dixie Pig, which I talked about earlier, so I won't repeat myself. <laughs> I guess another thingy is that there's a line in the deleted scenes where Ben is talking to Susan about his book, and Susan says, the hero is Ben Mears, she said. He bowed. And Ben responds, every author makes a guest appearance in every book, Susan. And when I read this, I kind of shuddered a little bit because like, I still don't really like the fact that King put himself in the Dark Tower. And here he is like right on the page in his second published book, <laughs> putting in the words of his main character. That's just what authors do, dude. Yep. I'm like, yeah, but you don't have to go right into like there's Stephen King. Here he is. Hi, I'm a character in my book. I mean, I, I gained a greater appreciation for what he was doing when we were reading The Dark Tower for this podcast. But my original read of The Dark Tower books when King appeared in it just uh, really irked me. And seeing this line just sort of refreshed all of my my uh, <laughs> annoyance with King for doing that. So. What are you going to do though, right? He's the author. Yeah, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? We'd like to take an opportunity to thank our patrons who continue to support our show. You too can be a patron by getting access to exclusive Patreon content, such as bonus podcast episodes, by visiting patreon.com slash twoguysdarktower, and you can learn more there. Sean, is it time for some fun stuff? It is. All right. It looks like we've already... <laughs> and we've we've already talked our... about this. We've stolen our thunder. <laughs> One of the things of fun stuff that I listed in my notes was Jimmy's rat death. We talked about that earlier, but yeah, when, when he is just consumed head to toe by rats uh, when he's trying to escape the, that basement, that was a really spooky scene. I wish that something like that were still in the book, and it was just so much fun. So I just wanted to call it out here. Yeah. 
in the afterword, King talks a lot about comic books, and those are definitely trash and probably bad trash in a lot of instances. Mm-hmm. But they, but they had uh, a deep, deep influence on him, especially the EC horror comics. And he writes in the afterword that he likes comics uh, because the way that they portrayed vampires was different than the other vampires he'd seen. Like these were American vampires; they had they owned restaurants and they chopped people up and turned them into hamburgers that, that they could sell. <laughs> and there was blood banks where they were milking people for like all sorts of weird stuff. But um, he liked the vampires because they were American vampires. And in 2010, King co-wrote a comic series called American Vampire. So I thought it was a little prescient that he uh, mentioned that there. So something, obviously, you could see a lot of times King has ideas. We talked about this with 112263, how you could see him working through these ideas before it finally became a book. And I wonder if he was already thinking about something with American vampires here. I wouldn't doubt it. So another fun stuff item I have is that there's a line in the afterword where King talks about Callahan's fall from grace. The line is, so Callahan is sent hence into the land of Nod, which lies to the east of Eden. And in Salem's Lot, Detroit serves as a stand-in for Nod. And anytime I hear about Detroit in a context of like, well, let's just say it's not Eden. (laughs) It reminds me of one of my favorite comedies, Kentucky Fried Movie. And there's a scene in it where the evil warlord is basically punishing all of his prisoners. And one of his prisoners is an American spy from the CIA. And the American spy says, you can't scare me. There's nothing you could do that could, could affect me. And the, the warlord says, take him to Detroit. <laughs> and then the American spy is like, no, no, anything but that. So <laughs> I'll play a clip from the movie to, so you guys can enjoy it. Bring me the prisoners. And as for my American friend, the CIA thinks it can infiltrate the mountain of Dr. Crud. You can't scare me, you bastard. Take him to Detroit. No! No, not Detroit! No! No, please! Anything but that! But if you haven't seen Kentucky Fried Movie, check it out. It's one of the, I think the original Zucker Brothers movie, famous for Airplane and... Naked Gun? Yeah. It's some good stuff. Or fun fun stuff. stuff. I was going to say, fun stuff. All right. As we like to do when we get to the end of a book, we like to do just sort of a little summary and see what other people thought of it as well as ourselves. So... Library thing rankings, 3.94 stars. Goodreads rankings, 4.2 stars. Both of those are out of five. Um, comparable with the, the Dark Tower stuff, but, you know, fairly, fairly good. A quick review from Booklist for the illustrated edition. And the reviewer says, oddly, it's not the vampires that make Salem's Lot great popular fiction. Mr. Barlow is no Dracula. He doesn't even appear until the story's nearly half over. And he's perhaps the most one-dimensional figure in the book. But that single dimension is enough, unadulterated evil. The real main character isn't a person at all, human or vampire. It's the seemingly idyllic New England town of Jerusalem's lot. And then later on, as we get to the conclusion of the review, as the known gives way to the unknown, King shows how the small town insistence on maintaining the illusion of tranquility makes easy pickings for a vampire intent on fomenting a little evil. If Salem's Lot were just another old-fashioned vampire novel, it would portray a straightforward struggle between good people and bad vampires. It would not portray the arrival of vampires in a lot, as a kind of supernatural manifestation of the town's distorted sense of itself. King feels both affection for and anger toward his small town. A part of him wants to see Salem's Lot get its comeuppance, and this part gives the novel a degree of frisson that most vampire stories lack. And yet in the end, the vampires don't win, at least not exactly. Yes, Ben Mears pounds a stake in Barlow's heart, but that isn't enough. 
the evil continues to thrive. The town needs its own stake. Ooh. How do you stake a town? Yeah. Well, you burn it. You don't stake right. it. Yeah. <laughs> the reviewer says lots of different writers have wrestled with mixed feelings about the small towns of New England, but it took Stephen King to burn one down. So what's interesting about that one is it comes after the book had been published and around for 30 years and it's positive. Uh, Library Journal talking about this version also says that this is one of King's scariest creep best. Read this one with the lights on. But then I was able to find a contemporary review from Kirkus, and this is October 1st, 1975, so right after publication, and they talk a little bit about the plot of it, and they end with vampirism, necrophilia, at dreadful alia, rather overplayed by the author of Carrie. So not a big fan contemporaneously. However, I mean, from what I read of King, I think this stands as one of his best books in a lot of people's opinions, and it's definitely one of my favorite King books. I agree. I think this is one of the best books we've read together for the podcast, for sure. That we could both agree on. <laughs> and we both agree. Yeah. I really, really liked this book. All of the writing throughout was tip top. The story that King told was great. It had a lot of complexity, just like in the book list review, you know, the, this, the town was front and center as one of the, the key points to this story. The nature of the town King's relationship to towns like this and what he was trying to say about small towns, all that made this so much more interesting. And King hewed so close to Stoker's version of what a vampire is and how vampires work that it didn't feel like a retread, but it, it felt familiar enough that I didn't need to focus on what are the rules of vampires. I could just live in the story mm. and exist with the characters. Yeah. For a book that is over 40 years old, it doesn't seem overly dated either. Yeah. Obviously, there are pieces that aren't the way they would be now, but it is a self-contained enough story about a small town that could easily be put in 2020 without very many changes at all, and you would have the same sort of book. Yeah. There are many King books that you can't say that about. And he, he says this himself. Uh, in the afterward, he says, I have always been more a writer of the moment than I wanted to be. Mm -hmm. That's both a positive and a negative, right? Like, I think that if you want to know something, and I think I've said this before on the podcast, if you wanted to know something about late 20th century America, you could do worse than to pick up a Stephen King book and get a sense of what America was like. This book, and maybe because of its subject matter, it seems as if it is a little more timeless, like that it could fit in in today. Like it's obviously not a 19th century Dracula novel, but it could be updated for the 21st century without that much changed, I think. Yeah. I mean, you'd have to just come up with a way to have people's cell phones not work. Yeah. But I think you could still take care of some of that, right? Yeah. I just picture myself with, you know, transplant myself with all the technology and communication devices I have available to me now into the story. And if I were Matt and I was spooked by what's going on upstairs because Mike Ryerson was like sick. I would have my cell phone out recording video of what's going on and I would have video evidence or, but maybe you, you just change it and say like, oh no, video cameras can't see vampires just like mirrors. Right. Exactly. So That's it would just would be do. nothing. So yeah. But I would have also like called Ben and he would have answered because he would have had a phone in his pocket. I know I'm, I'm going way off here in the weeds, but that's why you have to, like, authors struggle so much and movie makers struggle so much to, like, sort of take that ubiquitous communication 
out of their character's hands. So, so right. otherwise, plots often just don't make any sense with if everybody can just pick up a phone wherever they're standing and tell somebody yep. something that they need to know and solve the problem. Why do you think everyone likes everything in the 80s nowadays? Because of Huey Lewis? Because of Huey Lewis. That's exactly right. <laughs> it's the power of love, man. It is. All right. Well, that's going to be all for this episode of Two Guys to the Dark Tower, Kane. Thanks, Jay. Thank you. Links to all of our social media is available in the show notes. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts. To support the show, visit patreon.com slash Tower. Next episode, join us as we conclude our vampire Stephen King oeuvre with a Salem's Lot-related story, One for the Road, found in both the illustrated Salem's Lot and Night Shift. For Jay Russo, I'm Sean McCurr. Thanks for listening. You're cut too, shishy. <laughs> you too, shishy. Uh, You're cut too, shishy. <laughs>